This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of The Law School Show. I'm your host, Kelly Humber, and today I have the privilege of speaking with the leader of Canada's Federal Green Party, Annamie Paul. How are you doing today? I'm great, Kelly. How about you? Good. Very good. Um, so I guess we'll get started. I'll give listeners a little bit of a backgrounder on you, and then um, I'll ask you some questions from there. So I understand that you started your law degree um, at the University of Ottawa in 1995, and shortly thereafter, you completed a master's in public affairs at Princeton um, and were awarded several prestigious fellowships during and after your degree. So I'm curious, what is it like to work in the law policy academia nexus as you did? Very interesting and very fulfilling. Uh, I, I like applied research. I like finding the answers to things, uh, asking and answering policy questions, and then working to see those brought to life. And so between my law degree and my master's degree, I've had many opportunities to apply those skills and to be involved in that. So it's, it is very fulfilling. And I would say that at this moment in this job, it's one of the most fulfilling things. That's very interesting. Um, so I understand that from there, you launched a career into international affairs um, and that you served in various positions with non-governmental organizations um, at the International Criminal Court and at the Canadian Mission to the European Union. Um, so I'm curious what it's like to be a Canadian trained lawyer in these international arenas. I mean, you're very well prepared. Uh, the education you get at law schools in Canada is excellent. Uh, the skill, the skill set, the toolbox of of skills that you take away are very, very transferable. Uh, I just acquired great critical thinking skills, great um, writing skills. Uh, I learned how to ask uh, the right questions. Uh, you learn how to work in teams, and all of those things when you're working internationally come in very handy. And I would say that Canada also, as as a country that uh, welcomes lots and lots of uh, people from all over the world. And I come from Toronto, which is an incredibly uh, multicultural city that uh, I am also very open to other cultures. And uh, that's something when you're working internationally, that's very important too. So growing up in Canada and going to, to law school here is excellent preparation for a global career. Interesting. Um, so I wonder if you could also maybe talk to some of your passion projects uh, during this time. Yeah, I love I love a good passion project. <laughs> Usually passion project is just a code for I, it's not going to pay anything <laughs> or you're not going to be able to live off of it. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, after I finished my graduate studies, I came back to Canada. I really wanted to work on the issue of political underrepresentation amongst equity-seeking groups. And uh, I was very lucky to early on get a fellowship from an American foundation, interestingly enough, to do that work. And that definitely was a passion project. There wasn't any institute or organization uh, focused on that theme in Canada at the time. Uh, there were other organizations who were working to understand it as part of a bigger portfolio of things. But 
that definitely was was some uncharted territory, and uh, I really enjoyed that. And then when I was in in Spain before moving back to Canada, uh, I saw that there was a need for an organization, well, not an organization, let's say a, a support or an innovation hub for the many NGOs that had been deciding to settle in Barcelona, um, kind of a center of gravity for them. And that also was a labor of love because there wasn't anything like that. So whenever you're starting something new that hasn't been done for the first time, you absolutely have to uh, be passionate about it. You have to be excited about the possibilities because it is a lot of work without a lot of glory. Uh, but I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, I've actually looked at the websites to the hub um, and it looked really innovative um, and just like a pretty unique uh, project within the sphere of non-government organizations. So that was really cool. So my next question is about your more recent journey onto center stage in Canadian federal politics as the first black Canadian and first Jewish woman to be elected as leader of a national political party. Um, in previous interviews, I've heard you say that one person should not represent so many firsts in Canadian politics. And you've also spoken openly about the challenges and very personal toll that public policy, that public politics has on Black, Indigenous and people of colour. And I was wondering if you can tell me what things folks from those backgrounds should consider um, before choosing to enter public politics and also what you have found to be yeah. personally rewarding despite the personal toll. Yeah, I'll start with uh, the the second part of the question first. It's very rewarding to be part of positive change in both in bigger ways and in smaller ways. This week was a great week because uh, the government reversed its decision to claw back uh, uh, benefits uh, from self-employed people who were going to have to pay those uh, back because of a mistake the government made. And the government was really committed to clawing that money back for months and no, pushing for it and creating uh, platforms and opportunities for recipients who were being affected to share their stories uh, wasn't easy. And being persistent isn't, hard, isn't easy either. There are definitely people that say you should move on. Why aren't you moving on to another issue? This is done. So having that uh, decision reversed was incredibly rewarding and Definitely, that's one of the reasons that I entered politics. Uh, it's also really rewarding to see ideas that you have developed just out there in the public discourse and, and having people discuss them. Again, this week, one of the ideas that we put out uh, was that Canada should um, seek the relocation of the 2022 Winter Olympics because of the, the genocide that's being perpetrated against the Uyghur in China. And so that is, uh, you know, having that now out there and being reported on and actively considered is something that's uh, really meaningful. Uh, but politics is hard. Uh, sometimes it can be very lonely. It requires a lot of stamina. Um, getting a role, get winning a role like this or winning um, an election as a candidate takes a lot of commitment. It takes human resources, financial resources, which often uh, equity-seeking uh, communities don't have access to. Uh, it requires sacrifice. It's very hard to find a balance between your personal life and uh, your work life. Um, and so having a strong support network is always critical to being able to, to make it through and to be effective in the role. So those are things definitely to think about. Those are just general things, but in you know all of those things are 
even greater challenges for equity seeking um, peoples because they they have we tend to have less access to those kind of resources and they really are very important. Thanks. That was a really good um, enlightening answer. And so my last few questions uh, are about climate justice and how it relates to social justice. So I was wondering if you could maybe start off by just explaining to listeners the nuance between those two terms. In terms of uh, when we speak of climate justice, we're talking about uh, the right to a a livable planet, Uh, just, I guess, in its most basic form, the, you know, the right to a livable planet, the right to um, the right to make sure that there is equality uh, between peoples, between regions, uh, in terms of access to a livable planet. Um, we know that uh, the warming climate isn't affecting everyone equally, that uh, the countries, in fact, that are least responsible for global warming are the ones that have been the most directly impacted um, and that are going to be forced to, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be forced to migrate in many cases. They're living through extreme weather events. And so when we talk about climate justice, we also keep that in, that in mind as well. And in terms of who should be paying for the kind of uh, investments that we need to make in order to uh, bend the curve on global warming. And when we talk about social justice, you know, those issues have been very much uh, in the news over the last year when, as we're thinking more about how to build a just society. The social justice is about ensuring, again, the same sort of equity between peoples uh, that everyone has the opportunity to live a life of dignity uh, and uh, a life uh, that is valued. And we say that the two things have to go hand in hand because they really intersect all the time. Uh, one quick example is the case of um, uh, rural transportation, so bus service in rural areas. Now, that could be a climate issue or a justice, a climate justice issue or you know, an access issue, Uh, because you could say, well, it's, you know, if people are on buses and they don't have to drive their cars and there's less greenhouse gases. And so this is a climate uh, justice issue and it's a fairness issue. Uh, But it's also a social justice issue because we know that in some communities, Indigenous women and girls, uh, when they don't have access to public transportation, they're forced to hitchhike. And when they're forced to hitchhike, uh, they often end up uh, in a very dangerous and often violent situation. And that was one of the re- uh, recommendations of the uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report. So there's lots of intersections between uh, climate justice and social justice. And that's why we always say that the two have to go hand in hand. Thanks. That's, uh, I thought like that was a really exhaustive uh, kind of explanation of it. Um, this is maybe a similar question, but I wonder if you could flesh it out, just kind of what you're speaking about before a little bit more. Um, My bigger question is, what sorts of procedural and substantive rights issues do you see Canada's legal system needing to address um, to work, to better work towards the ideals of climate justice? Well, uh, you know, we need a a regulatory uh, framework that supports uh, climate justice. Um, you know, we have, for instance, uh, right now, uh, the House is uh, in the midst of, of considering uh, the introduction of climate accountability legislation, which would uh, hold uh, this, go- well, this government and future governments accountable for meeting certain greenhouse gas uh, emissions reduction targets. Uh, so that's an example. Uh, 
Uh, we know that there are uh, cases right now, that there are suits uh, that are being launched uh, right now um, to enforce uh, the right to uh, access to, to a, a, livable, a livable environment, uh, some being led by young people. We know that uh, more and more uh, around the world, consideration is being given of um, uh, um, ingraining um, ecocide as, uh, as, as a crime and perhaps a, a crime uh, that would be inter integrated into the Rome Statute. Uh, so, you know, the law certainly, I would say more and more is going to have a role to play because it, people are, if they find or feel that they're not getting enough justice through the political institutions, then the law has always been uh, an area that uh, people have gone to for relief and recourse when those institutions haven't proven to be satisfactory. Excellent. Wow, that um, is definitely a great real touch on um, the interplay between politics and law um, on, you know, the issue of climate justice. And so I think that's uh, about all the time we have for today. Um, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate um, the chat. It was so great to be with you. And uh, I just wanted to say he hello to your listeners. And for those of you who have chosen to study at U of O Law School, you should know that it is fantastic. And for me, it was one of the best decisions that I ever made, uh, particularly as someone who uh, knew very early on that uh, she didn't want, the, say, the traditional uh, legal pathway. It is a great place to, to be, get prepared for that. Uh, and so I'd say you're lucky. You're lucky. And I'm looking forward to having you as colleagues one day. Wow. Uh, University of Ottawa a lot. What a ringing endorsement. Yeah. Uh, okay. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kelly. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.